Good morning, and let us stand in honor of God's Word as we continue to worship God by hearing His Word. Today's scripture is going to be taken from Mark 14, 43 through 52, and you can find that on page 497 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. And as always, we want to remind you, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please take one out of the seat back in front of you as our gift. So now let us hear the word of the Lord. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing on but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked." This is God's Word. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have brought us here this morning to hear your Word, to sit under your teaching, Lord. We thank you that you have given us your word, which is a guide and a light of understanding to all of us. That by it we can know you and know truth and walk in peace with you, God. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to be able to speak to your people. Lord, I pray that you would humble me this morning and that you would use this vessel to glorify your name, to proclaim your truth with boldness, God that your name would be magnified, and that all of us would be brought low. Lord, I thank you for the goodness of your word and what living water it is to those who are your saints this morning. I pray that as we refresh ourselves, God, by the truth of your word, that it would lead us in holiness and righteousness, and we would live lives of worship acceptable to you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this uh, weather this morning is very appropriate for this kind of message, as the theme of this uh, text that we have before us this morning is one of betrayal, betrayal and sovereignty, and I thought the rain was quite fitting as we come into the house of God. So as we remember back, what has led up to this moment? Uh, if you remember... We had Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And if you remember that during that uh, supper that Jesus was having with his disciples, there was a moment at which he uh, declared that one of them would betray him. 
And in that moment, we learned that uh, Satan took over Judas and led him out. And from there, Judas was departed and had left the gathering of the disciples. As he had sought out his mission at that point to betray Jesus. Uh, next, Jesus foretells of Peter's denial, that Peter would deny him. Jesus told Peter, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus told this to Peter after, Jesus, after Peter had already told Jesus, I would not fall away. Even if all the others fall away, I would not. Then Jesus leads the disciples to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And two crucial things happen. Important things happen while they are there in the garden. One, Jesus submits his will and all that he is to the will of the Father. In his prayer, he surrenders to the Lord and the plan that God has ordained to take place. And secondly, the disciples in their weakness allow their flesh to take hold of them and fail to join Jesus in prayer. For they were weak. And at the end of, of the end of that last paragraph... That Mark taught on last week. Jesus rebukes the disciples as they have fallen asleep. And the last thing he says to them is, Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And if you look at our text, the the first two words are, And immediately, and immediately. While he was still speaking, Judas came. In the moment, in the worst moment of betrayal in human history... The kickoff of the hour of darkness. Let us never forget that even in this moment, God is completely sovereign. We are about to explore the deep dark depths of human treachery this morning. But even in this moment, God shows off his utter control of all things that are about to take place. That as Jesus is uttering the very words, my betrayer is at hand, then he shows up on the scene. So picture this. The disciples were there, praying in the garden. Jesus asked them to pray. He gets up, finds them asleep again. And then as he comes before them and is rebuking them for their lack of faith and unwillingness to persist in prayer, he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And before he could even finish speaking, Judas is walking up behind him. This moment came as a surprise to everyone but Christ. The disciples, I'm sure, were surprised that this was supposed to be a night of prayer. Although Christ had told them what would soon take place, we know that their eyes were still closed and they were unwilling to hear what Jesus was telling them. So they were just as surprised as this moment of prayer. All of a sudden, they now see Judas, one of them, coming up with a crowd following him with swords and clubs ready to arrest Jesus. As we'll read later on, we know that the soldiers were also surprised this, this evening. As we'll read later, when we see, we see that the soldiers, in wanting to arrest Jesus, he goes on willingly and surrenders willingly. But this evening is no surprise to our Lord. As he submits his sorrowful soul to walk willingly into the shadow of the valley of death. The scripture goes on to emphasize that Judas was one of the twelve. It says, then Judas came, one of the twelve. This is important to recognize. Scripture emphasizes here that Judas was one of the twelve, no stranger to them. 
This was not a religious radical who had been screaming or preaching against Christ. This was not a Pharisee or a chief priest who had expressed their distaste, their open public distaste and abhorrence of the company of Christ. No, this was Judas, one of the twelve. See, it's often hard for us sometimes to realize the weight of what's taking place here because many of us have grown up knowing Judas as a betrayer. Many of us have grown up hearing the story, knowing how it ends, and when we think of that Judas of the Bible, immediately our minds think of the betrayer, the evil one. But I want to remind you that it was not but a few verses before this, in verses 18 and 20, where Jesus foretells of his betrayer, and all the disciples are sitting around the table thinking, who could this be? Who possibly among us could be a betrayer of Jesus Christ? How could this be? Have we all not been called by Jesus himself? They might think. Have we all not sat and understood and heard his teaching, seen his grace, tasted of his goodness and his mercy, preached his name and cast out demons? Who among us could possibly betray our Lord? Even in Matthew's account of this story, it tells us that as Judas came up and kissed Jesus, Jesus' response to him was, friend, do what you came to do. This was a friend betraying friends. An intimate, close relationship being broken. I'm sure many of us may have experienced in our time a moment of betrayal. Someone we trusted Betrayed us. Some we thought was close has now turned against us. This likewise is exactly how the disciples would have felt. Completely surprised. Goes on to say that the crowd came with swords and clubs. Meditating on this story, I was broken in heart as I thought about how the disciples must have felt as they see this crowd coming to arrest Jesus and who is in front? Their dear brother, Judas leading them, with weapons of violence. The rage, the sadness that was probably stirred up within their heart is probably unspeakable. And they come prepared for war, for violence, to take Jesus by force. But they also came, if you remember, in darkness. Hidden in the shadow of night, they come as hypocrites to do evil. As cowards who do business in darkness, they come as workers of the evil one. They came at night in a time when Jesus would be in a secluded place away from the crowd. If you'll uh, think about it, I don't know if you know of the geography of the area, but the Garden of Gethsemane is actually outside of the city. And it being nighttime and late into the night, it would have... Um, It would have been that the people were in their homes asleep, likely inside the city, if outside the city in their homes. This garden was a secluded garden. It was a walled garden, very thick with brush. It was a secluded, quiet place. And it was at this moment that these men come to take Jesus. They, as cowards, feared what the people would do if they tried to take Jesus by night. This night represents what Jesus says about it in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, when talking about this story. When speaking to those who came to arrest him, Jesus says, This hour, this is your hour, 
and the power of darkness. And nothing more fitting than the hour of darkness to begin with Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends and being approached by those who are hypocrites themselves. It says that they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It tells us that they were sent by the leaders of the institutions of their day. Those who were supposed to watch over the people, protect the people, care for the people, hear the needs of the people. These were the ones responsible for this mob of macabre, this posse of hypocrisy, these servants of Satan. The men who had plotted against Jesus from the very beginning had finally found their moment of opportunity by this generous offer of a backstabbing Judas, one of the twelve. I can imagine their thinking of what an opportunity They're sitting in their synagogues in their secret places. And then behold, Judas walks in and they think they might have even recognized him. Hey, you're one of them who walks with with this Jesus, so-called Messiah. And now he comes willingly to offer Jesus in exchange for money. I'm sure they love the opportunity. Finally, we have an in, they think. We have an opportunity. Tell us, where will this Jesus be? Where will he be? How can we get to him that we can, we can arrest him and get out safely? And Judas gives them all that they ask for, completely willingly. Verse 44 goes on to say, Now the betrayer had given them a sign. You see, this was not an act of momentary pressure upon Judas to betray. This was premeditated, planned double-crossing. This was not circumstantial or accidental betrayal. This was methodical evil. They were so concerned with their own self-preservation, they did this at night with guards and weapons and with planned signs. Judas tells them, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Judas Judas had even instructed them on how to take Jesus away safely. It's interesting whom safety Judas was concerned about in this moment. His own, the guards in whom he exchanged the money for, but cared nothing for the one who had shown him only mercy and grace. They were not concerned about Jesus' safety in this moment, but their own. He instructed them on how to cover their own backs. Verse 45 goes on to say, And when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. Now in every English translation that you will find, or at least that I could find of this, it says Rabbi one time. But in the, um, in the vast majority of Greek manuscripts that we have of this text, it actually says Rabbi, Rabbi. And that's really important here. See, the double use of the word rabbi, rabbi, which is what Judas used to greet Jesus as he walks into the garden. Seeing him, he greets him, rabbi, rabbi. It conveys another level of intimacy between the person greeted and the one greeting. Allow me to present a few examples of what I mean. Think back to when Abraham is about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God. As Abraham is about to take the knife and plunge it into Isaac as a sacrifice, God calls out to Abraham, 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 do not lay a hand on the boy. 
Then we go up to Genesis 46, when Jacob feared to go into the land of Goshen, God came and spoke to him, saying, Jacob, Jacob, do not fear to go down to the land of Egypt. I will go down with you. Exodus 3, 4. God calls to Moses from the burning bush. We all know this. We probably heard it in, in our Sunday school. Moses, Moses. God calls from calls to him from the bush. The story of Samuel when he is sleeping. And he's laying in bed at night and he hears the call of the Lord. Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and goes to Eli. Eli is like, I didn't call you. Go back. And eventually Samuel realizes this is the Lord calling him. Personally. Personally. Intimately. 2 Kings 2.12, when Elijah is standing and they're walk- and he's walking with Elijah and God receives him up into heaven with a whirlwind of fire, Elijah looks up to Elijah and he says, my father, my father. You see, it was this intimate connection, this intimate relationship between Elisha and Elijah, a disciple and his teacher, a son, a spiritual son and his spiritual father. This double use of the word communicates this deep personal connection. Jesus in Luke 22, when talking to Peter, says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to take, to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus tenderly looks into Peter and says, I have prayed for you, Peter. And lastly, Jesus on the cross, what does he cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark fifteen thirty four. You see, it, this this double use of the word conveys this deep meaning, this deep relationship kind of connection that one would have to another person. Every time a personal name is repeated, it communicates an intense and profound sense of personal affection. This was the greeting a close disciple would say to his rabbi. Even throughout that day, when a, when a young man would be given into the priesthood like Samuel, this is how he would refer to the one who is mentoring him, Rabbi, Rabbi. This greeting is how Judas betrays Jesus. Calling to him as one who was dear to him, and yet is calling to him as one who stands as a prostitute. The call of one who has abandoned the pure love of Christ for the love of money. Exchanging what was truly good for the desires of the flesh. He greets Jesus now and he says, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he approaches him and it says he kissed him. Now this was no ordinary kiss. This was not just a peck on the cheek. The Greek word here actually conveys fervently kissed. It was an intimate kiss. It would have been a grabbing of the head and kissing passionately or intimately upon the forehead. It was an intimate greeting. Now, we are a little bit unfamiliar with this kind of greeting. I think that if I were to come up to you this morning when you walked in the doors and say, Hey, Dustin, nice to see you, man. It's been a while. And I grabbed you by the head and I kissed you, right? It might seem a little bit awkward. It's not, uh, it's not normal. Our forms of greeting, uh, now are, are a little bit more subtle. You know, a good manly handshake, a side hug is typically the form that we might convey a little bit more of an intimate greeting to one another. 
But this, as you can imagine, was a deep sense of relationship, a deep greeting, a sincere meaning, a sincere greeting. In our day, we are very disconnected oftentimes from these passionate forms of greeting, although we have our forms. This kiss by Judas given to Jesus is historically known, or became known, as the kiss of death. The idea is taken, the idea is taking that which is a sign of your deepest connection or affection towards someone and using it as a way to harm them. It is the deepest cutting kind of betrayal. Some of us in here may have experienced this form of betrayal. Maybe you told someone something very personal or sensitive about your life and later they used it as a weapon against you. You entrust that person with your weakness. You express your intimacy and sensitivities to them. And they use it later as a way to harm you. You trust them and so turn your back thinking they have it. Only to find they are the one stabbing you from behind. Oh, what a terrible betrayal. What a terrible treachery this is that Judas does. And as we know, Jesus did see this coming. He knew as soon as he turned his back, Judas was waiting to strike. But for Judas, it was betrayal all the same. Although Jesus is sovereign over all things and is surprised by none, the reality of the, the type of betrayal that took place between Judas and Jesus was far more deep than anything we can experience today. For even even though I might be betrayed, I am merely a sinner being betrayed by a sinner. I can ima- not imagine the heart wrenching that goes on in the in the heart of Christ as as being perfectly one of love and kindness to Judas is now being betrayed, having given Judas no reason at all. In fact, quite the contrary, every reason not to betray him. He now stands and brings those who come to arrest him. Verses 46 and 47. We move on and it says, And they laid hands on him to seize him. And now that the, sing- and now that the signal has been given, they seize Jesus. Although, as we will see in a moment, he does not resist... Although in a moment we'll see it, he does not resist. It goes on to say, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. According to John 18.10, we know that this person who drew the sword and struck the servant of the high priest was Peter. Here is Peter again. Oh, passionate Peter. Honestly, I probably would have liked to do the same if I was Peter. I'm all for defending my friends and those who I care about. Those whom God has entrusted me to protect. I'm with Peter there. How often our passions, though, for what we think is right, get in the way of what God is trying to do. Or, I should more accurately say, what God is doing. I would rather often prefer that God tell us to take the kingdom by physical force. That's much more simple, isn't it? All right, everybody, here's the plan this morning. We're all going to get guns and we're going to go take it by force. It's a very simple way to do things. It's a very carnal 
physical. But that's not what Jesus came to do. It tells us he cut his ear off. You see, this strike by Peter was, was no accident. It was no shot in the dark. It was, it was an intent to kill. It was likely Peter took his sword and tried to take the head off the servant of the high priest. And in a split second, he dodged and only caught his ear. See, Peter was not playing around. He was serious about what he was about to do. Peter was going for the headshot. But Matthew 26, 52 through 54 tells us that Jesus goes on to then rebuke Peter. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will not at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? First, uh, John eighteen eleven tells us he concluded his rebuke with Peter with these words, But your, put your sword into its sheath, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What Peter could not see was that although this was the worst night of betrayal even Peter had ever seen and would ever be recorded in history, this was all according to God's sovereign plan. This is what was spoken about of in Isaiah 53, where it says, Our sorrows he carried. That's what Jesus came to do. It says, by his, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Or where it even says, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. Jesus knew what he came to do. He knew what the Father had asked him to do. And although Peter failed to see, this is what Jesus was trying to communicate to him. Peter, I know how your heart must seem. I know how you must be utterly befuddled by all that is going on around you. But I must drink the cup of the wrath of my Father that I may save the many. That's what Jesus was communicating to Peter. It goes on to say, verse 48 and 49, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Jesus now highlights the evilness of their deeds by making them question their own approach to him. Jesus is pointing out that they have come out against him with no cause or reason, completely unjustified in their conduct. They come out against him expecting him to be like them, return violence for violence. But he points out to them they have... But he points out to them they have come against someone they do not know and have not truly listened to. Maybe if they would have been more concerned with what Jesus was teaching in the temple and listening, they would have been less concerned with their greed for power and their plots to seize him. They would know that Jesus does not stand in this moment in opposition to them, but is ready to go willingly. Oh, how blind the hard-hearted. How blind we can be when our hearts are set on our own greed. And we don't hear and see what the Lord Jesus has to tell us. In doing this, he points out their hypocrisy and his sovereignty at the same time. They came to take him by force and he goes willingly. 
They came to thwart the plan of God, and they are merely fulfilling it. Their hypocrisy and his sovereignty. No one escapes the hand of the living God. But let the scripture be fulfilled, and they all fled away. And they all left him and fled, the scripture says. The disciples seeing Jesus go into the hand of his uh, the disciples seeing Jesus go into the hand of his enemies willingly was probably quite the shocker to them. Although Jesus again had told them of these events, they were blind and did not see it coming. They were probably still fantasizing about how Jesus would raise an army and take the throne by force. Who Jesus would set at his right hand and his left hand. Who Jesus would put in positions of authority. All these imaginary thoughts and fantasies of how Jesus was going to physically take his kingdom. And now all of a sudden, their world is crumbling around them. What has happened? They are probably thinking. And now seeing him surrender, they're probably struck with great fear and doubt. He was the one who was supposed to take the throne. And now he surrenders willingly? What is going on? This isn't right. This isn't how this was supposed to go. And feeling fear and doubt grip their hearts and their world fall apart around them. They flee. Our Lord has been captured. Our brother has betrayed us. What is going on? It was prophesied in Zechariah 13.7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What is going on, we might ask? Exactly what the scripture told. They fled from Jesus' side, as it was also foretold. They abandoned Jesus to face his darkness alone. At this moment, I can't imagine the loneliness that Christ felt. As he steps, takes his first steps into this valley of darkness, the father begins to withdraw himself as his wrath is poured upon his son. The world stands against him, Jew and Gentile, crying out for his death. The ones, his closest friend, one of his closest friends betrays him and the rest abandon him. As Jesus spoke in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, the hour of the power of darkness has now begun. I have felt loneliness before, but I have never even tasted of the kind of loneliness Christ was experiencing in this moment. Where literally everyone was against him. As Jesus now walks willingly into the valley of the shadow of death. Verses 51 and 52 goes on to say, And a young man following him. So who is this young man? Many scholars believe this young man may be Mark. It's possible it was Mark. As Mark was a close disciple of Peter. Peter discipled him intimately throughout his ministry. It was likely that the book we're reading, the book of Mark, was written under the tutelage and the supervision of of the Apostle Peter. So it's possible this young man is Mark. It's likely uh, pointing out the fact that Mark was also an eyewitness of these events this evening, having seen what took place. It says they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, I don't believe this portion of scripture was left in here is just a bit of extra historical detail. I believe what we see here in the young man who ran away naked is a representation, not just of the disciples, but of all of us. 
Think with me of Isaiah 47.3. God speaks of his judgment on Babylon and he uses this language. He says, your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare none. You see, this description of nakedness has been used all throughout the Bible as an image of the exposing of our shame. Our shame being left out and plain before God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam and Eve take of the fruit, then the eye, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Genesis 3, 7. And and later in verse 22, we see that as they, God brings about his judgment and tells them what's going to then happen. After that, out of a pure act of mercy, it says that God made skins and clothes for them and he clothed them, that their nakedness would not be exposed. You see, this idea of nakedness is intimately connected with the, with the, the shame of man's sin being revealed. Now fast forward thousands of years and we find ourselves in Mark 14. And as we are going to continue to preach on Mark and what happens next, I want you to keep in mind what you are about to see happen to Jesus, happen to Christ, is the shamefulness of man being completely and utterly exposed. And yet, also, the revealing of Christ's propitiation for man. On this day in history, we are reminded of the shamefulness of man. Whether Jew, Gentile, or even disciple, no one stands before God outside of Christ. No one stands before God without Christ. We are all exposed and without the work of Christ, left naked before God in shame. The disciples fled, and the Jews and Gentiles conspired against him. And we are all left naked before our God. So how does this apply to us? What a, what a dark moment in history. What a terrible thing. And many people look at Judas in judgment, what a terrible man. Like I mentioned earlier, oftentimes when we hear that name, we think of, of Judas, the betrayer. But remember when Judas betrayed Jesus, he used that kind of greeting with the double name. Rabbi, Rabbi. I want to tell you this form of hypocrisy is not unfamiliar to Christ. If you'll think of Matthew seven twenty one through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let us not be fooled today in thinking that this form of betrayal is isolated to Judas alone. There are many who will stand before Christ on that judgment day, and there are many who stand among the church today who all day long will cry, Lord, Lord, doing many things, serving on the worship team, singing songs, teaching lessons, preaching sermons even, Helping with the children. Showing up every Sunday. There will be many who say, Lord, did I not serve you? Was I not there? 
Did I not hear your word teach Sunday after Sunday? And Jesus will say, depart from them, I never knew you. Just as, as Judas on that day, many will come in the day of judgment as mere betrayers. Acting just like Judas, acting as though they loved Christ. Greeting him with a loving greeting, kissing him with a holy kiss. And they will stand before him and they'll say, depart from me. And that day, I never knew you. And that day, they will be cast into utter darkness forever. We're not fooling Christ. No one fools Christ. So let us be aware. Let us pray that God keeps us from this form of hypocrisy. This form of of putting our greed, putting our desires before Christ. I mean, think about what Judas, Judas used, or what Judas's motivation was to betray Christ. Money. Money. It seems in this moment how, how small a thing that he would take 30 shekels, the price of a slave, to betray the Son of God. I'll tell you, when we stand before judgment, there will be many of those in that day who think, man, how could they have put aside God For just more stuff. More cars, bigger houses, nicer things, promotions, prompt, pride. It was never worth it. An eternity, a thousand years from now, we'll look back at the grace that God has shown us and say, I'm so glad God spared me from my own selfishness, my own greed. For the things of this world are not even close to worth what God has in store for those who truly love Him. I can be fooled. We can be fooled. But Christ will never be fooled. As just in that day, He says, Behold, my betrayer is at hand. When you come before Christ in that day, it will be no surprise to Him what we have done. And if I can say anything this morning, if you find yourself feeling as though you live a life of hypocrisy, I urge you to repent. Turn to God, for He is gracious. He is merciful. Turn to Him while grace and mercy still abound. Hear this message of what Christ willingly did for those, for all of us, who betrayed Him at one point or another with our deeds and our actions. When we were supposed to confess Christ and we refused to, when we were supposed to love our neighbor and we selfishly refused to, All these moments are merely acts of greed, just like Judas. So let us cry out to God in mercy that we might find it. See, this this attitude of betrayal is quite terrifying. If you turn with me to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up in contempt. Church, let us pray this morning that the Spirit will always be our strength. Let us always count on the mercy of Christ. As Hebrew also teaches, let us go before the throne of grace that we never find ourselves in a position 
of betrayal. We'd be surprised often how easily our flesh can give in to just the right temptation. It might be different for many of us. But let us always be looking to Christ, calling upon His grace, depending on His mercy, and trusting in His sovereignty that we not fall away. For betrayal is a treacherous thing before God. Let us not like the crowd who came against Jesus be illusioned by our own thoughts concerning Christ. How did these men come? They came with swords and clubs, wanting to take Christ by force. Let us not come to church Sunday after Sunday and return to our homes, having closed our eyes and our ears to what God has to say concerning himself and concerning us in his word. Let us be those who have soft hearts by the Holy Spirit, so that we may hear the instruction of the Lord and walk in his will and faith, and walk in his will with faith and understanding, not becoming blind and hard-hearted and angry towards God, making him out to be a man like us, and then finding ourselves warring against the only true and holy God. This is how this happens. I see it often all the time when you talk to someone who has turned against God or hates God. Listen to their story. It often comes that this is what happened in my life, this terrible thing. How could God do this? And now they come to God with sword and club to wage war against Him, not realizing He comes with grace. He offers grace. He went willingly. Let's not, let us not be hard-hearted with our own passions and our greed and what we want out of our life and what we expect and cause that to blind us from hearing the truth of God concerning himself and his word. Let us not come with clubs of offense to attack the very person who has come to save us. But let us come with willing hearts to hear from God so that his peace may abide in our hearts and we find rest for our souls. And finally, how does this text apply to us? Consider Ephesians six ten through 12. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, strength, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Oh, how I wish that I had enough time just to speak on how literally and how practically this text alone applies to us this morning. But let us not be like the disciples and flee away, but trust in the sovereignty of God. Lean on His every word. Be strong by the Spirit. Although we, will still, although we still face a present darkness... Christ has come and shines light into this darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We all know how this story ends. Christ rises, and he reigns. So let us hear his teaching that we may be wise. Let us pray that we may be strong, and let us give that we may be loving. For our Christ has risen and has sent his spirit so that we may not fear and flee as the disciples did, but that by the power of that Christ which reigns, we may stand strong. Fathers, this morning, men, 
Hear the words of 1 Corinthians this morning, 16, 13. Be watchful. Don't be surprised at those who scheme. Stand firm in Christ, in the faith. Stand firm in faith. Act like men. Be strong. This is what God has called you to do as men. Mothers, let us hear the words of Titus 2, 3, 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Women, nourish your homes. Nourish your children. Raise them to hear and to know the Lord. Young men, Hunter, Warren, Young men this morning, hear the instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy 5.16 Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. This is how God has commanded us to stand firm today. How do we stand firm? By the power of spirit and the mercy of Christ. By the power of one who sovereignly goes willing to save us from our sin. And we do it as he has commanded. By not giving into the ways of this world and selling out to sinful passions of our flesh as Judas did. Or cowering away in fear as the disciples. For now we reign with Christ. May Christ be glorified in all of us. Amen. All right, if our uh, communion servers will come and prepare. I think it's funny, and speaking of God's sovereignty, this morning uh, the green stage, it looks kind of, it looks pretty nice, but I'll uh, be honest with you, it was kind of an accident. Um, Neither uh, poor Scott or I know really well how to work the lights, so we got them on and they were green and that's how it is. But I think it's funny because... The green in scripture represents the covenant. It's, a, it's, a, it's the color that represents the covenant. When you read in Revelation, you'll say that he goes and he has a, you know, emerald, uh, emerald throne and, and you see this idea of a, of a green rainbow before the head of Christ as he goes about in the clouds. And this is all that, that as God does everything that he does, what he has before him is his own covenant. The covenant he has made with us to save and to redeem his people. And in this dark moment, in this terrible moment that we read about, it is yet so amazing. Because as Christ goes willingly to suffer for our sake, what is before him? His covenant. His own promise. The promise he has made to save his people by his grace. And because of what he did... And because he goes willingly, we now have the blessing and privilege to joyfully partake of his body and his blood as we are nourished every time we gather together by his sacrifice that he offered for us. What a glorious grace we've been given. For those who have put their trust in Christ, we're reminded and refreshed every week. And this morning, if you have not done that, if you find yourself in a place where you have not completely put all of your trust in Jesus Christ to deliver you from your sin, that he has worked all things in your life to call you and to save you, and you have not trusted in him, then I would encourage you this morning to abstain from the table 
But don't stop there. Find David, Mark, or I as soon as you can and come talk with us and let us share with you the grace of what Christ has done that you too could join with us and partake of this glorious grace we have. So if you'll come, those who are in Christ, come and partake of the elements, grab the elements, and return to your seat. We will take them together. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us take the cup. Father, we thank you. For your glorious grace. God, that on the night that you were betrayed, you gave us a covenant of promise, which stands to this day, as we magnify of the glory of your grace and your sovereign work as you willingly went to the cross for our sake. God, we thank you for what a glorious glorious thing we have to just think on, to meditate on. And I pray, Lord, that this truth would seep deep into our hearts and fuel all of our life throughout the week as we go out proclaiming what you have done to all those around us with thanksgiving and joy and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you place your hands in a receiving position, the benediction I'd like to read over you this morning is from Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.